In our study this past week, uh, we talked about this idea of ministry of reconciliation and how that it is our personal responsibility to carry out this ministry in our world on a day-by-day basis. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul explained this when he said this. He said, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We talked about that last week. You see, folks, we've been entrusted with God's message that he wants a personal relationship with each and every one of us. But not only that, he wants a personal relationship with each and every person alive in the world today. He loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to come and make a way for us to be reconciled with him. There is no greater news that we could hear today, and there is no greater news that we can share with others today. It is our responsibilities. It is our responsibility to share this. We have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. He has made us ministers of reconciliation. It's our responsibility. It's our calling. Now we need to embrace this role as ministers and messengers of the gospel of reconciliation. In Romans chapter 11, Paul said these words. He said, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Or you might say, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Whichever way you say it, I'm fine with it. And so is uh, the dictionary. So, in other words, the gift of God, what is the gift of God? It's our salvation. It's the gift of God given to us. So, salvation by grace through faith is an irrevocable gift of God. But not only that, the call of God to carry the message of reconciliation to the world is an irrevocable call of God also. So as you sit here today, you might be thinking to yourself, what are you talking about, preacher? I'm not a a minister. I've not been called to preach. Why are you saying I'm a, a minister of reconciliation. Well, we've got to get this idea of professional clergy only out of our minds. You see, folks, as I reminded you last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, God tells us that, God, that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. He gave people with certain gifts to equip everyone else to do the work of ministry. Why? Because we are all ministers of the gospel of reconciliation. Each and every believer in Jesus Christ is a minister. 
And as ministers, we have a calling from God that is irrevocable. He will never take that calling away from us. Well, just a few weeks ago when we were studying 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 of that chapter say this. It says, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. You remember when we were talking about the old covenant and the new covenant and how we now have this new covenant? Here in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it says that God has made us ministers of the new covenant. So what does it mean exactly to be a minister of the gospel? What is it? What? What is required to be a messenger of reconciliation? Well, most often when people think about the role of a minister, um, they think of people like Brother David standing here, leading us in worship. Or they think about uh, the person who's preaching sermons or administrating the, the things that happen in a church or they conduct weddings and they conduct funerals. They, they think that's what a minister is. But what I want you to understand today is that the word minister is simply a word that refers to someone who is a servant. You see... The original Greek word used here is a word diakonos. And I don't normally share the Greek word with you, but I, I tell you this one because we get an English word from it. Diakonos is where we get our word deacon. And all that really means is a servant. They are a servant. Deacons were and still are men who were set aside by the church for a special service within the church. But folks, all of us are servants. All of us are ministers. So when speaking of one of his uh, disciples named Epaphras, Paul wrote these words in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul calls Epaphras a beloved fellow servant a faithful minister of Christ. Literally what he's saying here when he says a fellow servant, he says a fellow bond servant or a fellow slave. And then he says a faithful servant, diakonos, minister of Christ. In Ephesians 3 verse 7, Paul said, Of this gospel I was made a minister or a diakonos, I was made a servant of this gospel according to the gift of God's grace. I could go on and on in the New Testament sharing these passages of scripture that tell us that we are ministers of God's grace, that we are servants of Christ. But hopefully, I think you get the point. Each and every one of us is a minister of the gospel of reconciliation. Each of us is responsible to do the work of this ministry. So as we serve as ministers of God, it's important for us to demonstrate the love and the character of Christ as we're serving him. It's important that 
that people, when they see us serve, they don't see us, but they see the love and the character of Christ. And so this serves as proof of our relationship with the Lord. In other words, it's, it's validation of our calling to this ministry of reconciliation. When we love as Christ loves, when we have the character that Christ had, it is a validation of our ministry. And so our text today focuses on four ways that we are able to validate our call to ministry. And those are these. We validate our call to ministry by, number one, removing barriers to the gospel. We validate our call to ministry by suffering for the gospel. We validate our call to ministry through spiritual growth and maturity. And finally, we validate our call to ministry by responding to situations in life with contentment. So I invite you today, if you would, to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We have made our way to chapter 6 last week, and we'll begin today in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 6. The Bible tells us in verse 3, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet killed, or yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. So this passage, i got to be honest, is, is different from most passages. It, 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 you know, it has this huge list of, of different things that it tells us about how we are commending ourselves as ministers of the gospel. How are we demonstrating that we are ministers of the gospel? And as we go through this list, this list provides us with a list of proofs for us being able to show others and us be, to be able to measure ourselves as valid or legitimate ministers of the gospel. So the first thing that we notice this morning is that we validate our call to ministry by removing barriers to the gospel. Now, if you read through the life of Paul, you will discover that Paul often struggled to not offend people with the truth of the gospel. He, he really, he tried to speak truth, but oftentimes he would be offensive, or at least the people would take offense to what he was saying. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 
Paul said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He recognized that the, the message of salvation, the truth of Jesus Christ and the ministry of reconciliation, this was something difficult for people to understand. He said it was folly to those who were perishing. And both the Apostle Paul as well as the Apostle Peter quoted Isaiah in their writings when they said that the gospel was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, folks, the gospel just in its essence is offensive. The Bible tells us that. The gospel is offensive. Why? Because it's telling people how they have failed God and what they need to do to change. Non-believers are often antagonistic toward the message of the gospel and toward reconciliation with God because frankly, they don't even want to think about God. They don't, let alone, be reconciled to him. So as we are ministers of reconciliation, as we carry this message of reconciliation to the world, how can we remove these barriers that exist between non-believers and the truth of the gospel? Well, as I said, the gospel is offensive enough on its own, so we cannot add more obstacles to that message. And the way we do that is with unloving and insensitive communication. When trying to communicate the good news of God's love, we must first demonstrate the good love of God to these people. Did you hear that? When we're trying to communicate the good news of God's love, we must first demonstrate the good love of God to those people. You know, I've mentioned before that one of my mentors, Alan Rogers, uh, always said that people do not care what you know until they know that you care. Well, I've said that before, and I wanted to introduce you to Brother Alan this, this morning, give you a, a face with a name, and no, it's not the young guy that was my mentor, it was the older one. Um, but Brother Allen is a recovery pastor at a Baptist church in Waxahachie, Texas now, where he's been serving for about 10 years. And I went on Facebook this past week to find photos of him so that you could put a face with that name. Um, but what I found when I went on his Facebook uh, profile was honestly quite amazing. I looked through the pictures that people had posted of him because all the pictures that he had posted, I, I think some of you will understand this, all of his pictures were of his grandkids. Um, but there were a lot of pictures that other people had posted of him. This is, this is one of those pictures. And I could not begin to count the number of pictures that were posted of Alan hugging someone in his church. One of the pictures... And this is the picture. The caption beside it said this. Yes, we got a picture with the main man, our recovery hero, Alan Rogers. We all just adore him for his leadership and his commitment to our church family. 
He really does love us. What a testimony. All these years later, Alan's still practicing what he preached to me. And it's evidenced by all the people who love him dearly. I wonder this morning, folks, what would this church be like if every single one of us loved like Jesus? What would this church be like if each one of us showed compassion the way that Jesus showed compassion? What would our church be like if, if we reached out to the hurting like Jesus reached out? Or what would we be like if we would meet people where they are rather than trying to get them to where we want them to be? One of the greatest barriers that we face with the gospel message is people look at Christians and they consider us to be hypocritical. We want to clean people up before we let them in our doors. We don't want to accept people for how they are. Folks, when taking the message of reconciliation to a lost and dying world, our main goal should be to win another hearing because it takes a lot of opportunities for the gospel to penetrate our hardened hearts. So we've got to be able to share that message of reconciliation. We've got to, to preach to serve Christ in this way. But most of all, Let's not be offensive. Let's win another hearing. People won't listen to us if we come across as rude, caustic, and uncaring. Folks, if you want people to care what you know, let them know that you care. I was so excited that one of our community groups put this into practice recently. You know who you are. But they went and they shared the love of Christ with homeless people on a Friday night, providing them food and paying for them to do their laundry. That's awesome. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. We validate our call to ministry by removing these barriers of the gospel. Secondly, we validate our call to ministry when suffering for the gospel. You see, Paul often deals with difficult circumstances and situations in the ministry. Notice the way he starts verse 4, though. Before he goes into all the different things that he had experienced, he said this, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, this word commend could also be translated as the word demonstrate or the word to show. We show ourselves 
uh, in every way as servants of God. We demonstrate in every way that we are servants of God by enduring hard things, by dealing with hurtful things, even dealing with horrendous things. Look what he tells us that he endured here in verses 4 and 5. He said, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Hmm. The interesting thing I find here is just how, how varied this list is. You know, some of them, as he talks about calamities, natural disasters that he experienced, but some of them were very, very personal imprisonments, beatings, and hunger. Paul went through afflictions and hardships. Now, if you're unaware of all of these things that Paul went through, I want to invite you to do a reading plan this week. And if you want to scan that QR code, um, that will get you to the plan. Or it's in our Uversion Interactive Notes, uh, a link there that you can follow. But this plan is on the travels of Paul. And it, it talks about a lot of these different things that we go through or that Paul went through in his travels. And so when we read verses like these from Paul's writings, it makes me wonder why so many people question God in the midst of their suffering. Why do people, I mean, it, it happens all the time. Why do people question whether God exists? Why do people question whether God loves them in the middle of suffering. It seems pretty clear to me that in this world, we will have trials and tribulations. Beyond all of the stories in the Old Testament of people going through difficult situations and trials, if you look at the New Testament, you'll notice that Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. A couple verses later, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He said, blessed are you. Later, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. What did he say? I have overcome the world. James put it this way. He said, count it all joy when you meet various trials or meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Folks, if we follow Jesus for the sole purpose of gaining good health and great wealth here on earth, we have believed a lie straight out of the pits of hell. That's not God's purpose for our lives. He may bless you with good health. He may bless you with wealth. But if that's the sole purpose for trusting in him, 
It's a lie. It's what theologians today call the prosperity gospel. But folks, it's not good news at all because that's what gospel means is good news. The prosperity gospel is deceiving people with its lies. Multiple times in the gospel, in the gospels, Jesus told his disciples that he had to suffer many things at the hands of religious leaders in Jerusalem. He told them that he was going there for the purpose of suffering. The apostle Peter, one of his closest disciples, challenged his readers with this statement in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. He said, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. Jesus suffered for us. He now expects us to suffer for him. What makes us think we will avoid trials and suffering in this life? The biblical evidence to the contrary is overwhelming. Think one more time about James and Peter's statements on the issue of suffering. James said to count it all joy. And then Peter said suffering is an example for us to follow his steps. What, what do we glean from that? Well, we need to count it all joy when we get to follow Jesus' example and go through suffering. When we go through trials of various kinds. When people persecute us. When we experience calamities. A life of suffering for the name of Christ is validation that you are living for him. I think Acts 5.41 is a perfect summary verse for all of these thoughts. It says there, Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. A life of suffering is validation that you're living for God, serving him in the ministry of reconciliation. The third thing I want us to look at is that we validate our call to ministry not only uh, by removing barriers, not only by suffering for Christ, but also through spiritual growth and maturity. And we find this in the next couple of verses in 2 Corinthians 6. Now, remember, before Paul started this list in verse 4, he, he states, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then shares all the difficulties he went through. Now he's sharing the things that he has experienced in the way of spiritual growth and maturity. So we demonstrate or show that we are servants of God by... Purity, verse 6. Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So these characteristics that Paul lists here in verses 6 and 7 
should be evident in the life of a person who is a servant of God, who is a minister of the gospel of reconciliation. We need to demonstrate to others that we are God's servants. Not so that we can receive the praise of others, but so that they can see God, his love, and his character in us. We need to demonstrate to others by living a life of purity, it says. This purity should be evidenced by what we say, what we do, where we go, and watch this, what we laugh at. I think that's one of the most telling things. If something off color or inappropriate causes us to laugh, that reveals the condition of our hearts. We need to demonstrate to others by living a life of purity. We also need to demonstrate that we are servants of God by having a knowledge of God and a knowledge of his word. Not just an academic knowledge that allows us to win Bible trivia. That's not the point. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's not the point. God wants us to have a practical knowledge, also known as wisdom. To know how we are to live. He says, demonstrate this by purity, by knowledge. And then the third thing. Patience and kindness, number four. You see, we need to demonstrate to others that we are servants of God by how we treat others. Do we demonstrate patience and kindness in situations where other people often lose their temper? We also demonstrate to others we are God's servants by walking in the Spirit day by day. Walking in such a way that it's evident to everyone around us that we are not the same as other people. It's not just to be seen by others, but there is a noticeable difference in a person who is keeping in step with the Spirit. So we need to walk in Him. The next thing we notice is we demonstrate to others that we are a servant of God by expressing genuine love to others. So what does is, what is genuine love look like? Well, you know, it might look like someone who listens to a friend who's in need. Or it might look like someone who sacrifices their time to be able to help someone else. Or, or maybe it's someone who gives money who, uh, it, in order to meet a need of someone else. These are tangible things that we can do to demonstrate genuine love. And then the next thing that we see here, beginning in verse 7, it says, We demonstrate that we're God's servants by truthful speech. Always speaking the truth, no matter what, no matter the consequences, we always speak 
the truth. Folks, when we demonstrate these things to other, we are validating our call to ministry through our spiritual growth and maturity. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are to grow up. We are to become more mature. Grow in our faith into Christ is what he says. Now this verse, Ephesians 4.15, follows several verses about growing in our spiritual uh, maturity. And if you, if you paid attention to the address, it also follows that verse that we mentioned earlier about everyone being responsible for the work of the ministry. Notice what it says here in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Are you seeing some correlations here, y'all? Till we all attain the the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is a sermon series in these seven, eight verses. So much information. So much. But folks, as we grow, in our spiritual maturity. We will do the work of ministry. We will hold the body together. Did you see that? Held together by every joint with which it is equipped. The saints are the ones who are equipped. Which when each part, which when each member is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Folks, spiritual growth and maturity will not happen without the next thing in Paul's list in 2 Corinthians 6. Go back to there if you would. Spiritual growth and maturity will not happen without the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Folks, we cannot live for God without the power of God's spirit at work in us. We can't do it on our own. It is only through the power of God that we are able to live for him. And, if, and, and in Ephesians chapter 6, the passage about the armor of God, Paul explains in detail about the weapons of righteousness that are mentioned here in verse 7. In the left hand, we should hold tight to the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, is what he tells the church at Ephesus. And in the right hand, he said, we must hold fast to the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So how can we grow up in our spiritual maturity? By the power of God, through faith, and the word of God. Spiritual growth and maturity cannot and will not happen without faith in the power of God at work within us through the work of God, the word of God. So my question to you this morning is, are we, through the power of God, living a life of purity? Are we, through the power of God, growing in our knowledge of, and wisdom of him? Are we treating others with patience and kindness? Guess what? That requires the power of God, doesn't it? Are we, through the power of God, keeping in step with his spirit? Are we showing love to people in tangible ways? Are we speaking truth in all situations? Folks, these are the characteristics which validate our call in this ministry of reconciliation. But there's one more section that we find in our passage in 2 Corinthians 6. And that is that we validate our call to ministry by responding with contentment. Now, as I read these last few verses in our text this morning, I struggled at first to understand or see the significance of what Paul was trying to say with this. It seemed as if he was simply pointing out optional outcomes of our service to the Lord. Sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's not so good. That's what it seemed like upon first reading. But as I thought about it more, I came to realize that these could be looked at as attitudes. As attitudes that we ought to have when we are responding to difficulties. The overriding thought behind each of these scenarios is the, the, the concept of contentment. So once again, we reach back to verse 4 to help us understand our list. Uh, so Paul's saying here, we demonstrate or we show that we are servants of God through honor and dishonor. Through slander and praise. We're treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished. And yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. What's Paul saying here? I think he's saying no matter what situation we're facing. No matter how we're being treated by others. No matter how good something might be or how bad something might be, we must always respond 
with contentment. So I wonder this morning, can you really say, you know, I'm, I'm okay with those rumors that are being spread, even though they're not true. I'm okay with it. Hmm. Can you say, I'm going to live within my means, even if it means my clothes get old and worn out, out of style? Can you really say, I'm going to love those people even when they are rude and they ignore me? Can you really say, I'm going to keep on serving God even if I never am recognized for my service? Hmm. These are just some examples of an attitude of contentment that we ought to have as ministers of reconciliation. Now, you may be sitting there this morning thinking, does this even matter to me? Is it important that I validate my call to the ministry? Who cares, pastor? Well, that's the problem, frankly. Nobody cares when you don't show that you care for them first. Living our lives in obedience to this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians will have a deep impact on people around you. If you live your life according to what Paul's describing here, People will notice. They will see a difference in you. And as they see that difference in you, they will begin to wonder what makes you that way. And when, you, when they see that you care for them, they're going to want to know why. Actually, they'll probably ask themselves, okay, what does this guy want out of me? What's his ulterior motive? And through faithful demonstration of love, eventually they will discover that there is no ulterior motive. That you're just different because you love like Jesus loves. That's when you will have a real opportunity to communicate this message of reconciliation to your friends. Last week I told you a Christian's message is intimately bound up with his life and ministry. The two are hardly separable. Folks, if you want to have the chance to impact people around you, you're going to have to live in obedience with the truths found here in God's word, specifically in this passage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word that you have given to us this morning. 
I thank you for the example that we have in the Apostle Paul. And Lord, I just pray now that as I attempt to live my life for you as a minister of reconciliation, Father, I just pray that I would do so in the power of God, clinging tightly to the faith that I have in your son Jesus and making your word the most important thing in my daily to-do list. Father, help us as we live lives as your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.